So there are different kinds of change. There's a temporary change, which we see, of course, in cycl cyclical things, mood swings, good mood, bad mood, happy, depressed, hopeful, despairing. There's the change of seasons, the same seasons, but always changing. And the danger of remaining only at this level of change, or <coughs> conscious of this, at this level of change, is that we just skim the surface of life. And we remain just uh, sort of surfing the waves of change on the surface. And we miss the meaning, we miss the depth. And although that might not seem so bad, uh, if we remain superficial at a very low level of awareness, we probably become dangerous to ourselves or to others because meaning and depth are necessary for us to make sense of change. So the way we age, the way we grow uh, through the phases of our lives and the cycles of change is going to depend upon whether we are also going deeper or just skimming the surface. Then there's another kind of change, which is just linear change. This is where we, things just get older and wear out and die, aging and dying, whether it's uh, uh, things we have or cars we drive or our own bodies or perhaps even our own minds. And in the face of that kind of change, we either accept it or we deny it. There's a huge industry, of course, I think, uh, of, of, of denial of aging, for example. And we deal with this problem of things that we have uh, which stop working or break and then we now throw them away and buy a new one. We don't get things fixed anymore. It's impossible to get things fixed. So uh, again, the danger here is if we stay just at this level of change, either denying it or half accepting it, uh, our increasingly dominant state of mind is going to be one of sadness, mortality, things wearing out, things getting older, uh, inevitably brings with it a certain sadness. And then the joys and the beauties of life uh, fail to penetrate us. The sadness or the, maybe the bitterness or the ennui or the, uh, the, the 
the sort of negative detachment from life becomes uh, such that we, we fail to feel alive. So again, the third level of change that we've been talking about is transformation. And this is where we both come to know ourselves and come to know our source and our destination. So it's in this experience, deepest experience of, of permanent change, transformation, not cyclical and not just mortality, not just getting older, but actually something being renewed in us. Day by day, St. Paul says, we are dying and things are dying and the world is dying, uh, either cyclically or in other ways, uh, but inwardly we are renewed. And it's this inward renewal that makes us fully conscious and fully human. Mr. Eckhart, in that uh, first sermon that I was referring to, says that whenever we know the causes of things, then we at once grow tired of them. And we want to know something different. Always clamoring to know things is forever inconstant. So if we remain at these other superficial levels of change, we're constantly going to be asking questions, constantly seeking explanations and causes. But as soon as we get them at a superficial level, we tire of them and we go after something else. This adds to our inconstancy, to our variability. And this is why he says this contemplative knowledge, this contemplative experience, is so important. He calls it the unknown knowing meditation. And so this unknown knowing, this way of unknowing, keeps the soul constant and yet spurs her on to pursuit. So it's this contemplative uh, practice that now enters into our life, or becomes more prominent in our life, that gives us this steadiness, this stillness, at the center of all the change that's going on, all the letting go, all the, uh, uh, the losses, or the disappointments, or the moving on. So it's meditation then that gives us this the stillness, the steadiness at, in the midst of change, the ever-fixed mark that um, Shakespeare spoke about. And yet, when we are in this still point, where we have this uh, connection with our own center, then we feel we are growing. We are making progress. This is the paradox of it. The transformation in this transformation that takes place as we enter more and more into this still point is uh, described in the New Testament in, in terms of uh, our relationship and our knowledge and our 
life uh, in Christ. Putting on Christ is one of the phrases in the letters of St. Paul. Uh, when we were dead in our sins, he brought us to life in Christ. Now, we've, all, all of that, that kind of language, that sort of vocabulary, uh, can turn a lot of people off. Uh, it sounds as if um, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're being told uh, we were sinful, we are sinful, we're dead in our sins, and we have to repent, and we have to give up what we enjoy doing. But I think meditation sends us back to this vocabulary, this experience of entering into the the still point in ourselves gives us a, an unknown knowing or an unknowing kind of knowledge that um, makes this language more meaningful to us. When we were dead in our sins, what does that mean? To be dead is to be unconscious. To be in sin is to be continuously missing the mark continuously feeling that we're not doing what we, all that we should be doing or uh, bec being all that we could be. So when we were unconscious with, within this feeling of dissatisfaction and of incompletion, he brought us to life in Christ. It is through grace you have been saved. Well, grace is the experience of the givenness of something. It's not earned. It's not bought. It's not bargained for. It is truly gratuitous. And it's rare that we ever uh, experience grace uh, or that we're conscious of what is truly gratuitous, truly given without strings attached, without um, conditions. But it is through grace then, through this experience of what is freely given, with no strings attached, that brings about our healing, or our completion, or our uh, um, uh, progress. And he raised us up with him and gives us a place in heaven with him. Well, again, you know, we skim over that because it's some pictures of, Renaissance pictures of, of God sitting in heaven with all the different ranks, the, the dress circle and the stalls and the back row and all the cardinals and the bishops in the front. And, you know, so, you know, a place in heaven doesn't, seem very appealing, maybe for a couple of days, but not for <laughs> eternity. So uh, what does it mean to be raised up with him and to be given a place with him in heaven? Well, in order to experience what that means, we need to enter 
into the, uh, that, that, this experience of transformation or conversion or metanoia, change of the direction in which we're standing and looking and thinking and feeling. So an interior change that, that wells up, not just on the surface, from, on the surface, but from the depths and brings about a, a, a transformation. And in that transformation of consciousness, we see and know ourselves differently. We no longer think of ourselves from the egocentric perspective, me at the center of the world, and everything else revolving around me, and my timetable, and my schedule, and my desires, and my preferences, and everything judged by that egocentric standard, which is, you know, habitual for us. We all do it all the time. We gradually awaken up to the fact that uh, this state of egocentricity is the cause of most of our unhappiness and, and dis-ease and suffering. And in place of that egocentric experience of consciousness, very limited, imprisoned in fact, in the small self, we discover that we belong, that we belong to a reality greater than ourselves, but that is welcoming to us. And where we are not being checked or judged or, 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 or uh, threatened, but where we are, where we experience belonging and acceptance. You are part of a building, St. Paul says. So here's another a very different sense of self. You are part of a building and all are growing uh, into one holy temple in the Lord. Well, again, this language, you know, is, uh, seems very old language about holy temples and the Lord. But what is, how do we experience this? We experience this as we see other people within ourselves and ourselves in other people. One of the most common uh, uh, insights and, and, and expressions in all of the contemplative wisdom traditions, that as this transformation takes place, we see others in ourselves and ourselves in others. Uh, that's actually one of the definitions of the, of the monk from the, desert, uh, from the desert tradition. The monk is someone who sees himself in, in all things and all things in himself. You see it in the Bhagavad Gita. And I think this is what we're, this is what living in Christ means. So whether or not the vocabulary um, means anything to you. The experience does, of course. The experience is meaningful. And it's the experience that meditation will inevitably lead us to. The neurological studies of the, those parts of the brain that determine our sense of self and 
our spatial sense of self, where we are in relation to others, what we do out in the courtyard, uh, becoming aware of ourself within a context, and the basic human context is our relationship with other people. So we are now beginning to experience ourselves as growing together, as a solidarity, the unity, a oneness with others. You two are being built into, there he's speaking to one of these fledgling uh, Christian communities, you two, uh, to the Ephesians, are being built up into a house where God lives in the spirit. So let's just um, stay with that letter to the Ephesians a bit more. I can find it. So So this is uh, the, the, the great prayer of uh, St. Paul in the letter, chapter 3 of the letter to the Ephesians, one that Father John loved and used a lot. And St. Paul here is saying um, that I kneel before the Father, so the Father is the ground of being, the source of unity, from whom every family Every, every uh, cluster, every ethnic or religious or national group, so every, every way in which human beings differentiate themselves from others, not just at the egotistical individual level, but the group level. So in whom every family takes its name. So we exist in whatever group we belong to, uh, whatever nationality, whatever family we belong to, the identity of that is a common identity. The ground of being, the Father. Okay. So we exist in something we can recognize and name because we have this fundamental unity. Um, this in my, I have to remember it. I kneel in prayer to the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth takes its name, that out of the riches of his glory he may grant you strength and power through his Spirit in your inner being to grow so that Christ may live in you, in your hearts, through faith. And rooted and grounded in this love, planted in love and built on love, you will, with all people, be able to know the height, the length, the depth, and the breadth of the love of Christ, and to know it, although it is beyond knowledge. Until knowing the love of Christ, which is beyond all knowledge, you are filled with the utter fullness of God. 
So this is, this is the transformation that takes place collectively and in this experience of unity with others, with all, rather than the narrow sense of isolation and independence and competitive uh, conflict with others. And this lead, leads, this, this is an inner experience. He said it's a, the hidden self in one translation, uh, the inner self in another. So there's an interiority in this. This, is, this transformation takes place within ourselves, the deepest level, like the seed that's growing, how we do not know. This is what's happening within us. But of course, it manifests itself externally. For anyone that we heard, I think, this morning, whoever is united with Christ, there is a new creation. What does that mean? It means we see and relate to everything that is there in a new way. We see things in a new way. And this leads to a, a transformation of our way of behaving with others. And the new life in Christ, which has this interior, mystical, solitary interior uh, source, uh, spills over into a transformation of the way we relate to others. Um, so, so he says, I urge you, do not go on living the aimless kind of life the pagans live. You must give up your old way of life. Put aside your old self, which gets corrupted by following illusory desires. Your mind must be renewed by a spiritual revolution so that you can put on the new self that is being created in God's way in the goodness and holiness of the truth. So from now on, there must be no more lies. You must speak the truth to one another, since we are all parts of one another. So to lie to anybody is lying to yourself. And if you experience this unity with others, then you will want to be truthful. And uh, so he goes on, even if you are angry, you must not sin. Never let the sun set on your anger, or else you will give the devil a foothold. One of the tools of good works in the rule of St. Benedict. Never let the sun go down on your anger, because it will just get worse. Anyone who was a thief must stop stealing. He should try to find some useful manual work instead. That's what we should do with some of the bankers, shouldn't it? Uh, and be able to do some good by helping others that are in need. Well, there are a lot of people thinking about some radical new ways of looking at the economy and, uh, in, and making 
care and caring for others uh, essential to the way the economy runs, not just if we have enough left over for the NHS, we'll do it, but that this would be what drives the economy in some way. But I'm not an expert on that, but I'm inspired by what I read about that. God against foul talk. Let your words be for the improvement of others, as occasion offers, and do good to your listeners. Never have grudges against others, or lose your temper, or raise your voice to anybody, or call each other names, or allow any sort of spitefulness. Be friends with one another, and kind, forgiving each other as readily as God forgave you in Christ. So this is, this transformation, this mystical transformation is not abstract and platonic and, you know, out of this world. It is interior and it leads to a transformation of all social relationships and human community. There must be no coarseness or salacious talk and jokes. All this is wrong for you. Raise your voices in thanksgiving instead, and so on and so on. Now that, you know, has been interpreted as St. Paul attacking sexuality, and of course it, it, all of this could be used to um, reinforce the kind of puritanical, negative and repressive kind of morality. But when we, when we see the connection between the, the mystical, the spiritual, the interior transformation and what he's describing, it makes sense. We are going to live differently in terms of our politics, in terms of our sexuality and our, in terms of all our relationships and, and tolerance and acceptance of others. So, this is one more aspect of the transformation. And what is this uh, transformation? In the uh, theological understanding, it is part of a process of human development which begins with, in the mystical theology, the three stages. First is purification. So it's just tidying up and clearing out and getting the stains out of things as much as you can. So this is what we, this is the first stage of meditation. Purification. But even as this uh, tidying up, clearing out, refreshing, spring cleaning of our minds and feelings and heart, as even as this begins to happen, it opens up to another stage of change, of transformation, which, was, which is called unification. We begin to experience an integration within ourselves, bits of ourselves that had been broken off and fragmented or in conflict with each other, now we find can be, we can live with all of them, we can, we can see how they relate to each other, we, be, we begin to feel a healing taking place, uh, a new wholeness, 
uh, emerging from somewhere within us. And then even as that happens, or, uh, we uh, begin to, to glimpse the meaning of the third stage in this spiritual understanding of human development, which is theosis or divinization. But there is, in fact, now we are on a, we are on a, a fast track to, of transcendence and the ultimate, uh, there is no ultimate uh, arrival point in this process of transcendence because we are, in fact, being, as St. Paul said in that prayer, we are being filled with the fullness of God. St. John uh, puts it a little differently. He says, we do not know what we shall be like. We don't know what the final form, uh, the transformation is going to be like. So we, we are limited in what we can foresee and imagine. But he says, we do know, and what kind of knowledge is he talking about, but we do know on the basis of what we have already experienced and are experiencing through the change that takes place in us, on that basis, we already know, he says, that we shall be like him because we shall see him as he truly is. So, the, the, if, if, if we want to speak about a final transformation, but there is no final transformation, but as it were, the, the significant point in the transformation is when we see Christ as he truly is, not as we imagine, not as we've been, uh, as perhaps we may have been told about him. So these stages of change, purification, unification, divinization, are universal. Now, of course, we describe them differently, different traditions, different people, uh, different faiths, or those without religious faith will describe them differently. But they are universal. The question is, how conscious are we of them? Or how conscious are we of this process? And has the process really moved beyond the surface, the skimming of the surface, where we remain stuck uh, at these superficial levels of change? Have we really begun to wake up? And um, we are usually wake, w woken up on this journey, not by dogma, not by um, answers, but by questions. That's why Jesus asks so many questions in the Gospel, why he tells the disciples not to publicize the fact that he is the Messiah, because that's just an answer that won't um, actually wake people up to the next stage of their development. 
And um, I've, I've, I've seen this, you know, by teaching meditation uh, in a secular context without religious language, not hiding the religious dimension of meditation, but not focusing on it in vocabulary. Uh, and, I, you know, you can see that the, how the experience awakens in people the capacity to listen to the essential questions that they didn't even listen to or weren't aware of before. So you ask someone who is experiencing the changes that take place in them through meditation, and you say to them, what do you think is the meaning of this experience? And if sometimes they will look at you as if you have just, I don't know, uh, a, a brick has fallen on their head. Because they had never thought of meaning before. So it's questions more than answers that probably serve to awaken and deepen, heighten our consciousness in this process. But be, to be conscious, we must be still. Otherwise, our focal point of attention is co constantly, superficially changing, flitting from one thing to another. So we have to be still, we have to be awake, we have to be attentive. And in that stillness, be still and know, be still and know that I am God, out of this stillness emerges a kind of knowledge that St. Paul was talking about, and all the mystical traditions we've been looking at, they all talk about it, a knowledge that cannot be known, or an unknowing kind of knowledge in which we move from conceptual and imaginative knowledge to experiential or direct knowledge, spiritual knowledge. The more still we are, the more we see ourselves as part of the great web of being, the great family. So these, uh, no, we could describe these stages of, hu of human development in many different ways, psychologically and so on. But this is, a, this is a spiritual interpretation of the human journey that comes to us through the contemplative wisdom that we've been talking about. And St. Irenaeus uh, makes this link then uh, between the, the, the spiritual wisdom and the stages of human development at a psychological level, where he says, the glory of God is the human being who has become fully alive. So this is the glory of God. So God is glorified in us. What does glorified mean? Glorified means fully alive. What a glorious day. What a beautiful day. What a glorious view. We are filled with a, a feeling of fullness, feeling of beauty, of, of delight, of joy, of transcendence, and of, uh, you know, just filled with good things. So 
this life, this glorious life of God, is the fully alive human being. So it isn't that we glorify God by building beautiful churches or uh, having beautiful liturgies where we verbalize how great God is. We actually glorify God by becoming fully human and moving in our own particular way, unique way, from one stage of our development to the next. And then he adds, the life of the human being is the vision of God. So the, the fullness of God is the fullness of human life, and human life expands and becomes divine by seeing, by knowing, knowing with this unknown knowing. So we're going to change uh, whether we like it or not. We're subject to change, victims of change. Um, the difference comes in whether we see meaning in that change whether we see it as purposeful and as leading us somewhere better. And this can be described, I think, also in the universal contemplative concept of self-knowledge. And there are levels of self-knowledge. Meditation, if nothing else, will bring you to self-knowledge. Self-knowledge also unfolds changes, at the very beginning we simply become self-conscious. So even when people begin to meditate, maybe they become more aware of their aches and pains or um, their swallowing, and you know, people sometimes, um, you know, get fits of coughing uh, very soon after they start meditating because uh, they're just conscious of themselves swallowing, which they weren't conscious of before. So, uh, self-consciousness, feeling ourselves perhaps as objects of other people's perceptions, the painful stage, stage of adolescence where we think everybody is looking at us and judging us. So, that first level of self-consciousness gives way later to a self-awareness where we can understand ourselves and our ever-changing responses to the world around us. We begin to be aware of, uh, of ourselves actually relating to the world. And we may begin to realize, well, actually, no, everybody else is wondering about who's looking at them, so they're not particularly looking at me. The next stage, self-analysis, you might say, is where we begin to be conscious of the patterns within our own mind and our behavior and our responses, and we become perhaps judgmental about ourselves. We see our faults, we see our failings, we see patterns that we would like to change and so on. But then, if we continue 
the, the journey, the practice, we move into self-knowledge, as it is, can be properly called self-knowledge, um, which is a non-self-reflexive experience of being. In other words, we're not thinking of ourselves, or analyzing ourselves, or comparing ourselves, we are actually just being ourselves. Children have this quite naturally. We don't educate them too quickly. Uh, but most of us, it takes us some time and effort and trouble and work to recover this childlike state at a more, obviously at a more mature level of existence. So, and this is why John Main says about meditation, you know, you're not trying to please God, you're not trying to put on a good show, you're not, you're not justifying yourself, you're not analyzing or judging yourself. You are simply, you're not playing a game. Uh, you are simply being yourself. And that radical simplicity, which is, which is at the heart of the gospel, is the heart of Jesus' own uh, authority. He is who he is. I am, he said. That this uh, radical simplicity is what we really mean by self-knowledge. But at each stage of self-knowledge, we are changed. There is a death and a resurrection. He also says every time we sit to meditate, we are entering into the dying and rising of Christ. We are actually entering into this cycle of dying and rising as we take the attention off ourselves. And as we do, make that fundamental, simple act of detachment, as we say the mantra, that little step changes us and leads us into a new way of being. For anyone who is in, the, in union with Christ, there is a new creation. So every stage of self-knowledge, whether you break it down to uh, each particular step, or whether you take it as a, a whole process over many years, every step of self-knowledge changes us. It leads us into an experience of separation, detachment, but simultaneously into an integration or into a new wholeness. And in the Christian tradition, especially, this self-knowledge, as it grows, leads us into the knowledge of God, even when we are going through the dry stages of meditation. And this is something John of the Cross, I mean, and all the, all the mystical teachers, uh, but John of the Cross with particular uh, clarity, I think, uh, describes. So he says, when you, begin and when you begin to enter into contemplative prayer, there is a separation that has to happen uh, that is going to be difficult for you at first. It's going to be, he calls it, the night of the senses. 
So the familiar is talking to religious people, uh, as everyone was. Uh, so maybe it's a little different uh, the way we would describe it today, but it's, uh, the experience is the same. So he says, you were familiar with all these devotional forms of prayer that were very satisfying, but they weren't satisfying enough. You knew there was something more. Um, and reluctantly, you let go of your focus on them. He doesn't say you have to stop them entirely, but he says you, you, know, you no longer look to those familiar forms of spiritual satisfaction as if they're going to give you any, everything, because you are beginning to feel drawn to something deeper, to something else. You don't quite know what it is, and it's confusing at first. And then you will begin to feel withdrawal symptoms, especially if you were very addicted to some of those, or very familiar, habituated to those. It's going to feel difficult. That's why people put up a big fight Religious people, especially, put up a big resistance to meditation. And however many times you say, this does not replace other forms of prayer that you find helpful, they will feel that it is at, at first. They will say, well, you know, I'm very comfortable with the way I pray. With. And uh, what you're saying is, uh, is, is throwing all of this out of the window. It's not what we're saying. But there is a detachment. There is a change taking place. And it will lead, at times, to what he calls the, the dark night, or this feeling, not well, well, the dramatic, dramatic way of putting it, but uh, it's the same, uh, he describes the same thing, actually, as the cloud of unknowing, the author of the cloud of unknowing, uh, John of the Cross, a little bit more dramatically, and. Uh, uh, intensely, uh, describes it as a dark night and the cloud of unknowing as entering into this, moving from this cloud of forgetting, letting go of your thoughts and moving into you don't know what, into this cloud of unknowing. How we do not know. So this is just, this is something uh, John of the Cross describes. Um, uh, so we have now arrived at this, that from this arid night, okay, this feeling of not getting anywhere in my meditation, it's very dry. Uh, from this arid night, there comes, first of all, self-knowledge, from which, as from a foundation, rises this other knowledge of God. So, at one level, you evaluate your meditation and feel that it's getting you nowhere, it's just dry. But at the same time, you know that you are coming to know yourself better. A new experience of self-knowledge is becoming conscious, is awakening. And even more within this self-knowledge, the knowledge of God. Is, is forming. For which cause St. Augustine said to God, uh, let me know myself, Lord, and I shall know thee. So, um, John of the Cross insists that this, the means to a knowledge of God 
and of oneself is this dark night with its aridities and emptiness. So what is actually happening here in our psychological sense is, of course, that the ego, our familiar egocentric way of being and seeing, is being transcended. The objective otherness of the ego is yielding or softening and expanding to a more subjective otherness. In other words, uh, we still have our feet on the ground, we still do our backbends, we still have our own little aches and pains, we still know that we occupy a particular space on the planet, so we still know that we are, um, we have an individual uh, identity or essence, or but that is no longer quite so solid. It's not defended as much as it was before. It's less competitive, therefore. We begin to see that there are other others around us and that we don't need to be frightened of them. Maybe need to keep an eye on them, some of them. But, you know, every other person is not necessarily a threat to my well-being or is going to take something away from me that I want. So this, here's a softening of our sense of self in relationship to others. And that is a direct result of meditation and it's one of the ways in which this contemplative wisdom changes the world we live in and why we need this. We need this understanding of change uh, in the, uh, our present world. Um, now, how we respond to that, this doesn't just happen overnight and we make, uh, we make judgments and we make uh, theories and we make religions out of this and through this process. The Jains, for example, beautiful Indian tradition, uh, have this, are so conscious of this that they've institutionalized a respect for all forms of life. I was walking on the path uh, this morning after breakfast and I, I saw this little beetle on the path. Quite a nice, colorful little be beetle. And I stood watching it. And um, uh, it, it must have felt me. I probably couldn't see me, but anyway, it must have felt this earthquake going on around it as I walked. And it, um, it stopped. And it panicked a little, ran to and fro, and then it ran to a little piece of wood, and I, this, this was my interpretation of it, it hid behind the piece of wood, not realizing that I was looking down on it. So I waited and waited, and of course it, it didn't move, uh, and I went on, careful, you know, and, and on my way back I looked and it had moved. So, uh, if I was a Jane, I would have had somebody in front of me, or 
would have been somebody in front, uh, sweeping the path very carefully so that any insects would be taken out of the way and wearing a mask so that I wouldn't uh, swallow a fly by or something by mistake. So, in a way, it's a little over the top because not everyone can live like that and not everybody has somebody to clear the path in front of them. But in another way, it's quite a, a beautiful expression of a reverence for life and for other forms of life uh, apart from our own and the sense of our, um, our, our place in this, in this beautiful web of being. Now, another approach to this new experience of self in relationship to the world is maybe a little less um, extreme. We accept that we participate in this world and we are part of the, the dying and the rising and the eating and the hunting and everything else. And we accept that we, we participate in that, in this universe. Uh, and we try and do so in a way that minimizes the harm, the inevitable harm that we will do to others, to other forms of life. So that's a, maybe a question of temperament, a question of belief. Indians are very good at it, of course. You see Indian restaurants which, are, which have the title veg and non-veg. <laughs> so, so the way we, in other words, the way we respond to this new sense of self in our relationship to the world will vary and we have to be respectful and reverential to all of those other responses that people have. But we can't help but feel, as human beings, that we are clumsy beings, really. We will tread on beetles and we will tread on other people's toes and we will hurt other people's feelings without wanting to. Uh, what we have to be watchful of is that we don't want to do it and if we do want to do it, we, we restrain ourselves from hurting others unnecessarily. But even if we don't want to do it, there will be times when we do. Because we take up space, we compete for the limited amount of space and resources in the world around us. And we jostle with others, like in the rush hour, like driving through a traffic jam or on the tube. And we push things and people around just by being physically present under certain conditions, uh, even if we don't want to. We may not be totally dominated by the ego, but we have, we have some egotistical perception that, uh, that creates more or less, we want to minimize this by our laws, by our personal behavior, by our consciousness, uh, by the communities and societies we, we construct, we want to minimize this. 
But the question is, and going back to the new way of life, the new creation that St. Paul was describing, can we live together without crowding others out? Without pushing other people aside? And I think this is what the rule of St. Benedict is describing. An attempt uh, for ordinary people to live uh, a life in which the individual is respected, the exception proves the rule, and yet where life is, is, is centered more upon this experience of relationship, being part of the, temp the holy temple, being part of the body of Christ, rather than upon my own egocentric individuality. And the only way I think we can live together in this way is through love. Even the attempt to live together in this way is an expression of love. Even thinking about it is an expression of love. And love is this sense of connectedness. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Make your home in me as I make mine in you. Remember, I see others in myself and myself in others. As a branch cannot bear fruit all by itself, but must remain part of the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me, with me in him, bears fruit in plenty. Now, what about God? At the first level of self-knowledge, at the egocentric stage of our development, God is the big thing up in the sky, uh, other than us, and on whom we project all sorts of human um, feelings and characteristics as we talking about the other night at Mass, you know, uh, God is angry, God uh, changes his mind, and God punishes, and so on and so on. So we project all of this onto this image of God. So St. John of the Cross is saying is that we find after a while, if we're open to our own stages of development, that praying to that kind of God just pays smaller and smaller dividends, that we are less and less satisfied by it. Or maybe we become more and more egotistical in order to defend that image of God. 
And we feel very threatened when somebody else points out that, you know, maybe that isn't what God means. And I think this is the, um, this is the great gift of the gospel. Because we are, we are given in this contemplative tradition, and the gospel is a, is a contemplative text, a mystical text, we are given a short and very direct way of understanding God differently. When God manifests, he doesn't say, make space for me. So if God were to come into this room now, uh, we wouldn't have to stand up and say, would you like my chair? Or we better move, move along and make space for him to sit down in. So God doesn't take up space the way we, inevitably, with our bodies and with our ego, do. Because, why is that? Because he's always been there. So he doesn't actually come in. It's that he manifests, or we see him. We become aware that he has always been there. And before we look at the um, gospel description of that, let's listen to the Bhagavad Gita again. Uh, chapter 10, where he, this great sort of uh, Krishna manifestation of God, uh, <clears throat> speaking to Arjuna, his friend, and he says, listen, and I shall reveal to you some manifestations of my divine glory. Only the greatest, Arjuna, for there is no end to my, <clears throat> to my infinite greatness. I am the soul, prince victorious, which dwells in the heart of all things. I am the beginning, the middle, and the end of all that lives. Among the sons of light, I am Vishnu. Of the Vedas, I am the Veda of songs. Among the terrible powers, I am the god of destruction. Of priests, I am the divine priest. Among great seers, uh, I am Brigu. Of words, I am Om, the word of eternity. Of trees, I am the tree of life. Of horses, I am the horse of Indra. Of weapons, I am the thunderbolt. And of cows, the cow of wonder. Of demons, I am Pralada, their prince. Among, other thing, among things of purification, I am the wind. I am the beginning and the middle and the end of all that is. Of all knowledge, I am the knowledge of the soul. Of the many paths of reason, I am the one that leads to truth. Of sounds, I am the first sound. I am death that carries off all things and I am the source of things to come. I am the cleverness in the gambler's dice. I am the beauty of all things beautiful. And know, Arjuna, that I am the seed of all things that are, and that no being that moves or moves not can ever be without me. 
there is no end of my divine greatness. Know thou that whatever is beautiful and good, whatever has glory and power, is only a portion of my own radiance. But what of what help is it to thee to know this diversity? Know that with one single fraction of my being, I pervade and support the universe, and know that I am. So, there isn't anything we can say is not immersed in being, in God. Now, the resurrection appearances of Jesus uh, communicate the same truth to us, but in a different, uh, a different way. What we could say from a Christian perspective is that Krishna here is the Logos, the Word of God, speaking through this mythical figure of Krishna and, and the great uh, mystical wisdom of, of, um, <coughs> of India. Uh, with the gospel, in Christian understanding, this Logos has truly become human. So the way that this is manifested to us is going to be very human, touchable, tangible, and personal, and interpersonal. And we, I think we see this in the, in the amazing change of gears that takes place in the gospel after the resurrection. When Jesus appears, and these resurrection appearances were, were written last, um, because perhaps they were the most difficult to describe. Here, here's a couple of them. So remember, when God appears, God doesn't take up space, anybody else's space. Um, in the evening of that same day, the first day of the week, <coughs> the doors were closed in the room where the disciples were. Jesus came and stood among them. He said to them, Peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord, and he said to them again, Peace be with you. So a very, very economical description. Uh, and less is more. And, as, and here, as in all the resurrection appearances, this experience of his presence, of his being with them, without pushing them out of the way, or in any way competing, conflicting, judging them, or evaluating them, that his being present to them, as they become aware of it, 
changes them. And it changes them, the most obvious way in which it changes them is that it gives them a purpose. They are filled with meaning. And they have a knowledge of what to do with their lives. Then there's another one, which is an appendix of the Gospel of John. It says, later on, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples. It was by the Sea of Tiberias, and it happened like this. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, and others uh, were together. Simon said, I'm going fishing. So he'd gone back to his old job. His, his boss had promised him this great position had died, and uh, so he had to go back to fishing. And they replied, okay, we'll come with you. We've got nothing else to do. They went out and got into the boat, but caught nothing that night. It was light by now, and there stood Jesus on the shore, though the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. So Jesus called out to them, have you caught anything, friends? And when they answered no, he said, throw the net out to starboard and you'll find something. So they dropped the net and there were so many fish they could not haul it in. The disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So again, uh, this appearance of Jesus, it's, it, it's handled very subtly, isn't it? It's, uh, it is that he becomes uh, perceptible. They, they see him, even though they didn't recognize him. And there is a very ordinary exchange at one level. So did you catch anything today? very ordinary, mundane, at one level. And yet, the meaning of it is, is uh, boundless. And again, it changes them in ways that they will have to spend the rest of their lives uh, trying to understand. <coughs> 